Hi, and welcome to a new episode of Across the Caucasus. We are back after a rather long break, but we are here again. Today with me is Veronica, and we have a guest with whom we are discussing national identity, conflicts and brokenness in the South Caucasus. Our guest today is Nasrin Gatimova, who is uh, recently here a research fellow at the University of Jena. And let's hear what she has to say. Thank you for joining us today, for being with us. And I think the first thing we do here is an introduction of our guests, and maybe you can just tell our listeners a bit about yourself, who you are, and what brings you to Jena. Thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, my name is Nazrin, uh, Nazrin Gatimova. I'm a researcher at the Yenov University. Um, I'm originally from Baku, Azerbaijan, but I've been living in Turkey for the last seven years. Uh, I also defended my PhD there uh, on the topic of regionalism and the prospect of building security community and integration in the South Caucasus. My research interests include the topics of conflict transformation, peace building, national identities. Um, I can say I'm a big fan of the theory of constructivism, and we will discuss it later today. Um, I can say that what brought me here to Jena University, I was um, amazed by the Institute of Caucasus Studies here uh, at Jena University, and um, I'm a visiting research fellow here now within the project of resilience in the South Caucasus, or Yena Kok project. Um, and my current research uh, here is uh, related to the topic of resilience to conflict-driven insecurity, in particular in the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict. So I analyze domestic challenges um, to peace building in Nagorno-Karabakh conflict and the strategies for conflict resolution. That's it, yeah, for now. And uh, we would like to start to talk about your PhD or about more general things. We will talk about national identity and maybe it's good to give a little definition. What is national identity? How can we define it? Sure. Um, national identity is a, a type of self-identification based on the understanding of an individual or collective through the perspective of national belonging. Uh, so we can differentiate elements of national identity, including language, including uh, religion, customs and traditions, common history, and also not only objective history, but also memory of history and some myths and legends of the past that still uh, persist within different communities. When we talk about national identity, we should understand that it's all often encompassed by a given territory, so it's related to a territory of a nation. Uh, we should also differentiate two different interpretations of a nation within the ethnic understanding and civic understanding. So that oh, if we talk about ethnic belonging, so that there is a, uh, the blood, let's say, like defines the nation. But when we talk about civic understanding, it's the citizenship that defines the nation. However, I would say that in general, Identity is a tricky term because depending how we interpret it, even in the civic or 
ethnic interpretation, we can understand it in a primordial or essentialist way, or also as a in a constructivist way. That's like uh, where I bring the theory of constructivism here, because the primordial understanding of uh, identity is very strict. So it, it defines identity as something given by our parents, and we have to be like, stick to that. Uh, however constructivist interpretation of identity defines it as something that is being shaped and reshaped so that some elements of identity were not given to us but were shaped throughout the history throughout some developments uh, also by the state by propaganda and other tools of communication between people and that's why like when these elements of identity are shaped it also gives hope that when identities are clashing they can also be healed they can also be treated accordingly this is why i would say that i will bring it back to the topic of my phd thesis when I analyzed the uh, region of South Caucasus, and there are different categorizations and criteria for defining a region, I will just give one definition, which summarizes, summarizes more or less uh, most of the um, theorists of regionalism uh, defining it. Uh, what is a region? It has three main elements. It's the element of geography, it's the element of culture, and it's the element of ideational belonging. So like when we talk about South Caucasus in particular, we see that it has some geographic boundaries, very obvious ones defined by the geography itself. It has uh, elements of culture, very definite, especially to the outsiders, to the foreigners. However, when we talk about the third element, the ideational element, Unfortunately, in the current circumstances, um, neither the societies nor the states and governments see themselves as belonging to the uh, South Caucasus. And again, it comes back to the theory of constructivism, uh, to paraphrase Alexander Wendt when he says, like, uh, nation is what the state make of it. So like region is what states make of it. Like, in fact, uh, the South Caucasus is broken region in the understanding of um, like the missing element of ideational belonging. It leads me to my uh, next question, which is about the South Caucasus as a region and what you brought up now as, as broken. And um, could you elaborate more which events, characteristics or positionalities have led you to the conclusion of coming up with this illustration of brokenness empirically? Well, if we look back at the history of the South Caucasus, uh, again, like I would just come back to the idea that the, the, we look as the region in the eyes of the foreigners, but we are not the region from within. If we look back at the history of the uh, regional integration efforts, there were two efforts uh, that were imposed actually by the outsiders. The first case one was uh, in April 1918, when it was like an effort of confederation, uh, which lasted for only one month, and it was imposed by the Ottoman Empire. And the second case was the effort of ZSFSR, what's so-called, like the within the framework of the Soviet Union. It was the first Transcaucasian Soviet Socialistic Republic, which lasted between 1922 and 36. It was artificially created by the Soviet Russia. It was an effort uh, to solve the conflicts that already emerged at the beginning of the 20th century. But again, it failed. 
And in the following uh, years, unfortunately, even within the Soviet Union, there were no efforts to develop that regional identity. I would say it would be too superficial and simplistic to say that national identities are the main obstacles to regional integration or like belonging of like regional identity within the South Caucasus. Because like if we look like even like at first sight, uh, yes, um, the nations of the South Caucasus belong to different religions, like there are Muslims, there are Gregorian Christians and Orthodox Christians, and our languages are also very different. But there are actually cases in the world where, like ASEAN, for example, Southeast Asian countries that have created a security community with different religions, actually. like The nations belong to different religions and different cultures, and yet they, they had this understanding of uh, cooperation within the region. Another thing I would say also, the positive element of the Soviet legacy was that actually the Soviets developed this Soviet identity, and they also developed this secularization, so that like, we can say technically that like Muslims of Azerbaijan are very secularized, and there are not very obvious differences between the Muslims and Christians of the region. And also the language, of course. So, although Russian language is slightly decreasing in, in the usage, uh, especially among younger population, however, uh, the older population is still talking the same language within the region, while the younger generation is more and more actively using English. So technically there are some, there is a background, let's say, there is a platform for building a common region between ourselves, between like this uh, three a state and three de facto states of the region. However, I would say that there are two problems, two main, uh, I would say, categories that impede the process of regionalization of the South Caucasus. The number one, I would say, is our histories and unsolved legacies of the past. I will paraphrase here Karl um, Marx, one of the alumni of Yana University. <laughs> the specter of the past is haunting the South Caucasus, I would say here. Unfortunately, that's the, these conflicts, uh, it's the, the ghost, it's the, like, the legacy that is heavily following us. It's on our shoulders, and it remains unsolved, unfortunately, even like until today. The Soviet system was, bolt, uh, was, was built on power and enforcement, um, so those conflicts were not totally solved, but they were just suppressed and kept frozen. And with the weakening of the Soviet Union in the late 1980s, they just explode like volcanoes. And I would also like to mention here is that even like also what when we discussed the legacy of the past, while the Soviets were building integration project at the beginning until 1936, um, they in the following years and decades, they actually developed two types of identities. They developed Soviet identity, the so-called Sovietsky Grishtanin, and they also developed the, um, the national identities of titular nations. It's also very widely discussed in academia, the so-called Karinizatsia. There is a famous saying of uh, Ronald Grigorsuni when he says that the Soviet Union was the incubator of the nations in the Soviet Union, actually. So in terms of regional level, unfortunately, yes, there were some... Um, how can I say, like imitation of uh, regionalism within the framework of organizing concerts, festivals within the South Caucasus. They even had this Mimino movie made famous, like, so like it also like, was developing the narrative of Caucasianness, especially in the eyes of the outsiders. Uh, however, I would say that there were no substantial efforts 
and no interest, of course, to build a regional identity within the South Caucasus or within other regions like Central Asia or Eastern European countries of Eastern European republics of the Soviet Union. If we look, at, for example, at the economies of uh, the Soviets, it was a hub and spoke where factories let's say somewhere in Azerbaijan, were not related with the factory in Georgia, but were related with the factory in Siberia or in Belarus. So like it did not develop actually the regional integration and interconnectedness. Again, like that's the first section, I would say, of the like the reason of the brokenness. And the second, of course, we should not blame on the, the past, we should also blame the present. And I would say it's the weakness of states, especially in the context of the geography surrounded by big authoritarian powers, Russia, Iran, and Turkey. Uh, we have weak political, economic systems. Um, we have weak civil societies and nationalistic intelligentsia. And we failed to build any kind of integration or in like mm, deep inter interaction projects, not only between Armenia and Azerbaijan, which are in the uh, conditions of a conflict, but also even between neutral diets like Armenia and Georgia and Azerbaijan and Georgia. And I would say in my thesis, I developed the idea that these three states uh, use national identity, some elements of the national, national identities to attract bigger brothers to solve their problems so like because of their weakness. At the basis of it lied this victimhood mentality and unwillingness to take responsibility for our own actions. For example, I can say that it's a very popular idea to blame Russia or whoever, that like we could not solve the conflict, in particular in the case of Armenian-Azerbaijani conflict. But uh, we should remember that there were actually cases and like periods in time, there were windows of opportunities in the 1990s and also in late 2000s when we missed those opportunities. That's why I would say that it comes from the weakness of the state. Okay, Nazrin, so uh, you just mentioned this, and, and this is one of the things, right, that the region is also most known for in terms of brokenness is the conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan. And famously, there was like a first uh, war in the 90s and the second one is much more recent. It was only in 2020. So could you outline for us what this rivalry, what this conflict is about? Um, the conflict in Nagorno-Karabakh is the conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan. In fact, the first war started in 1918-1920, so like its history goes back to the early 20th century. There were also clashes in 1905-1907, so there is a history of the conflict actually that preceded the Soviet period. During the Soviet times, the clashes between Azerbaijanis and Armenians were very sporadical, but more or less, like it was, as I said before, it was suppressed because of the uh, Soviet system in general, like a system of oppression. However, in the late 1980s, during the period of Glasnost and Perestroika, it was February 1988 when the Nagorno-Karabakh Autonomous Oblast, which was part of Soviet Azerbaijan, demanded for the transfer of the region from Soviet Azerbaijan to Soviet Armenia. And this uh, led to a series of events as a result of which Uh, the whole Armenian community of Azerbaijan had to leave Azerbaijan, and the whole community of Azerbaijanis of Armenia had to leave Armenia. So it was a painful process where actually each side committed crimes against the other side, and it led with, to more than one million of refugees on both sides. Uh, at the next stage of the conflict in 1992, the warfare, like the guerrilla uh, warfare, transformed into a full scale war 
1992-1994, as a result of which the Azerbaijani community of Nagorno-Karabakh itself was forced to leave. And then the Armenian forces of Nagorno-Karabakh, they occupied or like took, you name it, seven districts around Nagorno-Karabakh, which were actually populated by Azerbaijanis, and Nagorno-Karabakh originally did not claim for those regions. So like they were 97% populated by Azerbaijanis and Muslim Kurds. Uh, in the following period of time, between 1994 and 2020, in the interwar period, Armenia used these seven districts as a bargain chip at negotiations. However, unfortunately, Starting from 2006, um, they incorporated those regions to the territory of Nagorno-Karabakh in the constitution of the unrecognized republic. And um, that the process of negotiations under the aegis of um, OC Minsk group, it failed simply because like at some moment uh, there was um, opinion dominating already in Azerbaijan that the negotiations are... Uh, meaningless and the war is inevitable. And unfortunately, yes, this war started in 2020. It lasted for 44 days. And as a result of the war, Azerbaijan retook control over those seven districts, uh, Azerbaijani districts, but also it took some parts of Nagorno-Karabakh itself. So it also included the cities of Shusha, Hadrut, and others. For Shusha, it's, I would say it's a cornerstone maybe of the whole conflict because it's uh, perceived as an important element, again, of identity even like uh, by the Azerbaijanis. While for Armenians, it's also a very important city. It's, uh, like also, um, it has an important history for the whole region of Nagorno-Karabakh. And so I would say that today Nagorno-Karabakh is the biggest obstacle to regional integration. It impedes the flow of people, the flow of economy. It keeps the region weak and fragmented. And even for Georgia, I would say that while some experts argue that Georgia gained from Nagorno-Karabakh conflict because they got the access to many of those transport and other uh, projects that pass through Georgian territory. But in a bigger picture, actually, Georgia also lost a lot because like, the region stayed insecure and fragile. And of course, it affects all of us in the region. To a lesser extent, I would say that, yes, conflicts in Abkhazia and South Ossetia also break up the security architecture. And these conflicts and the insolvability just show that we need to bring new thinking to the South Caucasus, because it's a region of, it's a patchwork, I would say, of different nationalities and ethnicities. And within the context of demography of the region, uh, with such wide range of national minorities, it's important to develop post-national way of thinking. So like the way how, where nations will not play that dominant role that, that they play right now. So going back to this conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan, there has been a ceasefire agreement in 2020, but there are ceasefire violations regularly. And in the last month, the last remaining road has been closed and the situation is getting worse daily. So they are isolated from the outside world. Can you describe how these changes have impacted the notion of the South Caucasus as a region? I would say that the war in general, the 2020 war, uh, it reanimates the ghosts of the past, just as we were discussing earlier. So for Armenians, the ghost of the Armenian genocide and the image of Turks as the perpetrators and arch enemies, this image reanimated with a big pain. Unfortunately, yes, like the 
active support of Turkey during the war and the usage of Turkish drones and weapons played a huge role here. For Azerbaijanis, I can say that the occupied territories were reached, yes, for the first time in 30 years. However, like when people came to their homes, they realized that these homes were raised to the ground. They realized that they could not use it due to lots of landmines. So I would say that the post-war outcomes brought more traumas than solutions. And I don't even mention how many young boys died on both sides of the conflict. And of course, we understand that it will take decades for us two nations to get back to normal after that. I would also say that as I communicate with some Armenians about the conflict also and the post-war uh, developments and the feelings in society, what they say is, and it's interesting that I heard from them that uh, many of the Armenians of the younger generation who were born after the conflict and who did not know all the details actually, they were uh, they started wondering about the origin of the conflict. They start looking for those seven districts, and they, and they, you know, like looking at the map, realizing that it was twice as bigger as Nagorno-Karabakh itself. So, like it, it, the war itself had a cold shower effect at the beginning. However, in the following months, all of this rhetoric, like how can I say, um, the subsequent events, like they they changed the direction for public discussion because. Azerbaijani policy of imposing total capitulation only strengthened the fears that are dominant in the Armenian society. And I'm afraid that we failed to uh, to use the momentum to for societies to come to a dialogue, to actually start a sincere discussion of our mistakes of the past. Instead, we stick back to the logic of enforcement, of using some punishment, using some force in general to uh, make the other side capitulate and agree to your like position. I would say that in, uh, regarding the situation in Lachin Corridor, Again, like for listeners who might not know about the region itself, like Nagorno-Karabakh is a, it's like an island located within Azerbaijan. It is surrounded by Azerbaijani districts, and Lachin Corridor is a road connecting Nagorno-Karabakh with Armenia. Before the war in 1988, like during the Soviet times, it was an Azerbaijani territory. Uh, then, after the war in 1992, um, when Armenians opened the road, they, they took control over the uh, over Lachin. It, it had some element, actually, of, also of ethnic cleansing of Azerbaijanis in Lachin. However, like when we come back to to, to modern realities, to the post-2020 situation, I would say that the geography itself just shows us the necessity of a dialogue because the geography is so intertwined and we as two communities are so interconnected to each other. There is dependencies in terms of like water resources, in terms of like environment in general, like many elements of economies are interrelated, in fact. And that's why I would say that there are two ways to solve this, like to this dilemma, let's say. It is either ethnic cleansing, as like what happened in 1990s, and might happen right now. So in 1990s, it happened against Azerbaijanis. Now it can happen against Armenians. We should face the reality and, and know, like name the name, it, it with its real name, unfortunately. Or we can th choose cooperation between the two communities. And I would say like this solution is still doable. 
it's still possible uh, in the long-term perspective, although, yes, it requires, of course, unpopular decisions. It requires goodwill of the leaders. Uh, it requires a lot of discussion within the societies. But, like, again, we have no other option because the geography itself just invites us to either choose violent measures or choose cooperation. Coming uh, to the point of cooperation that you mentioned, I would be, well, we would be interested uh, to learn more about this from the perspective of um, domestic civil society and transnational activism, which is in particular going on among younger people. So were there or are there currently any attempts that try to have this cooperative discourses? Let's think about peace. Let's let me formulate it this way. Yeah. Okay. Uh, first, I would say about civil society, I would say that due to the, again, to the Soviet legacy, to the lack of tra democratic traditions, unfortunately, and also, of course, not only Soviets, but also the post-Soviet period of 30 years, um, where, especially in Armenia and Azerbaijan, and Armenia before Velvet Revolution, uh, authoritarian regimes absolutely impeded the development of civil societies. Uh, so like, I would say the civil society is either absent or very weak. And moreover, the public, the society, perceives those few people involved in those civil society organizations as foreign agents, as uh, grant eaters. They, they, they just blame them for everything because like these people, like some of them at least, like they are open to criticism, they are open to public discussion, which is not very popular, unfortunately, right now in the local societies. Uh, and I would also think that my perception is that there is a new thinking at the process of establishment among younger generation. And again, I would stress maybe the Soviet legacy in terms that, unfortunately, it was not popular. It, it was actually um, impeded, again, by the Soviet system itself to develop social sciences, humanities in general, history. It was rather manipulated, instrumentalized by the government to promote the state propaganda, the state narrative, and the critical thinking, unfortunately, it was not very widely developed in the Soviet system, in the Soviet system of education, and also at the level of like higher education, etc. So that's why like, I would say that the younger generation brings more hope because they are op more open-minded, they are open to, again, like to discussions, to criticism. And I would say that if not in the context of uh, regional integration, of course, like we are very far from there, like it, it's, it's, we understand that it sounds very utopian, but in the context of building kind of interaction, dialogue, which might bring us to that substantial understanding of peace, positive peace, like the so-called, uh, we have some... Uh, groups and initiatives and platforms like uh, Imagine Center for Transformation. It's also famous for its Caucasus Edition journal. Um, it's also Caucasus Talks, um, Caucasus Crossroads uh, Facebook page, uh, Bright Garden Voices, and many others. Like I'm a member of one of the initiatives uh, which was launched last year, the post-Soviet initiative. Um, we were successful to get more than 300 signatures uh, in September 2022 after the attack on Armenia. Uh, and like it was one of the biggest escalations in the conflict in Nagorno-Karabakh. And it, it was interesting that it brought many people from Azerbaijan who were actually like, criticizing the government 
And it was interesting that there were many people outside of academia, outside of social sciences, like from different backgrounds, who were open to give their signature like under the statement. And within the framework of the post-Soviet peace initiative, I would say that we focused on post-Soviet space, not on the Caucasus, because uh, we believe that all those tectonic changes in the wider region, including the war in Ukraine, the instability in Central Asia, Georgian conflicts, and of course the continuing war in Nagorno-Karabakh, they raised the necessity to develop solidarity between the peace builders, the researchers of the region. And uh, we also believe that the exchange of experience between us can, like from the wider region, it can help us find the way out of the deadlock. Yeah, Nazrin, you were talking, and this is also our last point, you were talking about the notion of hope and uh, and you already brought up utopia and uh, that this kind of thinking is important in, in, in particular in times where there is a lot of desperation and, and deadlock. So to sum things up, in in your view, what kind of measures or ways would there be in order to build trust and confidence among um, the populations in the South Caucasus? I would say that, first of all, no arguments work when the clashes on the front line continue. So like, and we hear news about new casualties, like almost every week. Of course, people have concerns about the future. And if we want to start building confidence, we need to bring people back to their normal everyday life. At a later stage, I think we need to see comprehensive measures, including the implementation of transitional justice, a change in official rhetoric. We need to see that there will be guarantees of security within international legal framework. I would say for the Azerbaijani side, despite all the pain and grievance of the first war losses, we need to think about the future and extend the hand of cooperation to the other side. Because again, as I said before, enforcement and punishment are not the best strategies to solve the conflict and build the long-lasting peace. Uh, and more generally speaking, for the whole region, I would recommend for us three nations and three de facto states to learn to build dialogue instead of monologue have sincere exchange of opinions and concerns, be more self-critical. Uh, it's important to rehumanize each other because unfortunately like there are so many illusionary myths about the other side due to the lack of communication between us. Uh, and I would like to mention here um, the idea Sonia Schiffers mentioned during the joint online discussion two years ago. There was a discussion of Tsois and Yana University, it's available online, uh, in the context of resilience in the South Caucasus. She mentioned that resilience is about finding the positive elements in societies that already exist and strengthen them. So I would say that the people of the South Caucasus have a great capacity in that regard. They are hardworking, they are very warm, very friendly, and despite all the madness that is going on, the memories and stories of peaceful coexistence, they are not totally lost. And that's I would say that it can, if we can bring the potential of people of the region and raise the alternative positive narratives about each other, I believe that we can build a prosperous and peaceful region. Nazarin, thank, thank you very much. Yeah, thank um, you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. That's it for today. Thank you for listening and until next time. Mm-hmm.